Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. The Bowery Boys episode 183, Orchard Street. Life on the Lower East Side. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash boys. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. And our destination today, the streets of the Lower East Side in the late 19th century, and specifically with the focus of one of the most vibrant streets of the day, Orchard Street. We're going back in time for this show, but also we're going just around the corner. For as many of our listeners know, we record the show out of our studio in the Lower East Side, just literally steps away from Orchard Street, so close, in fact, that Greg and I just headed over there before recording to grab a coffee. Kind of a surreal thing. You can't do that with every subject, but so we were able to absorb the sights and sounds of Orchard Street. And you know what? This show's actually quite relevant, though, as the street is going through some major changes today in 2015. However, if you look, if you walk down that street, or frankly, if you walk down any of the streets of the Lower East Side, you can actually find traces of the past everywhere you look. For this is a great street where you're encouraged to look up. Look up past the storefronts, the cafes, the laundromats, the galleries. Take in the four or five floors of apartment buildings and look at the cornice at the very top of the facade. Some of those will give you the date of their construction. Almost all of these were built between 1860 and 1900. Of course, this is a general story about the history of the Lower East Side, and we're going to visit the lives of of the Russian and Eastern European Jewish population that lived here that gave New York a lot of what we consider today to be part of the New York identity, from the language to the food. And before that, we'll also be visiting the Irish and the German immigrants who had moved into the neighborhood, many of them setting up their first homes here on Orchard Street. So join us as we walk the blocks of Orchard Street and life on the Lower East Side. So, Tom, although Orchard Street is incredibly crucial to the history of the Lower East Side, it may not be a street that people can immediately identify. Mm -hmm. They may know where the Lower East Side is, however. So why don't you situate us here in the city as to where all that is? Okay, so Orchard Street is a block that runs north-south in Manhattan's Lower East Side. It's only eight blocks long. It runs from Division Street, which is just south of Canal Street, up to Houston Street. Now, we talk about it today as the Lower East Side, but most of our story takes place from the mid-1800s till about 1920. During this time, New York was heading north. So at the beginning of our story, this was not really called the Lower East Side because it wasn't lower (laughs) to anything, right? That's a relative term that would come more into play as New York took its present shape. So this was kind of called the East Side. And actually, even later, the Lower East Side encompassed much of what we call today the East Village. And went all the way up to 14th Street. Today, it's a largely residential neighborhood. You'll find lots of cool shops. There's still vestiges of its history. There's still old discounted clothing stores and suitcase shops that you'll find, especially north of Delancey Street, although the area has also gone through massive 
uh, gentrification in the past 10 years or so, as many of these shops have been replaced by galleries, by cool coffee shops and restaurants, and especially north of Delancey, between Delancey and Houston, by bars and more nightlife options. Much of the architecture remains as it did over a hundred years ago, although there's some major exceptions, which we'll get to at the end of the show. Right. But let's start at the start here, Tom. Mm -hmm. Orchard Street? Now, that sounds pretty extraordinary, considering it's more of an orchard of tenements today. But in fact, doesn't it relate to an actual orchard? Yes, it actually conjures up the image of fresh air, which is a bit (laughs) ironic. And like delicious fruit on trees. Right, you can just taste it. Mm -hmm. Well, Orchard does trace back to the actual farm of the family that lived here before. So if we go all the way back to the 1700s, this tract of land from about Houston down to Division Street and from the East River all the way over to the Bowery, was part of the family farm of James DeLancey. The DeLanceys were an incredibly important family during the British occupation of New York. And their neighbors to the south of them, south of Division Street, were the Rutgers family, and so they had their own farm as well. And Orchard Street was a path that ran through the property, parallel with Bowery, that ran up to the property's orchard. Now, James had laid out a rudimentary grid and planned to develop this area into residential lots, as other people were doing around town very successfully and to great commercial success. Unfortunately, the Revolutionary War got in the way, and he, remember, was a loyalist, loyal to the British powers, and the Patriots following the war, were really not in the mood to have this kind of, well, <laughs> traitor around. So James took off, fled back to England, and his land was confiscated under an act that was passed by the new country. While the land was confiscated, oddly enough, his name is frozen in one of the Lower East Side's largest streets, that's Delancey Street. Right. And that's just how it works, right? The, the spoils <laughs> of war. If you think about what happened to Rutgers' name— The family was very patriotic, were very much on the pro-American independence side. Mm -hmm. And that name lives large. You know, their university is named after him. They're great things. They're proud of this Mm -hmm. name. Delancey gets Delancey Street. That's about it, right? That's That's about it. It's not really something you want to write home about. The Commissioner's Plan of 1811 would establish the grid north of here at about the same time that these surrounding streets would be laid out and these lots would be divided up. So in the early 1800s, these lots were divided up into 25 foot wide by about 88 foot deep parcels of land. And these were sold off mostly to smaller, middle class, working class merchants, artisans, who were mostly American born and they were living here because this is the best that they could do. The richer people lived toward the center of the island, getting away from all the vice and crime and noise and garbage and stench of the port area and the factories. But these people, you know, they could build their own home, and so they built row houses that were 25 feet wide. Many of these people probably worked in the shipbuilding field, as that was the, the center of that industry was down by the waterfront, just down the street. Right. Now, in the 1820s and 1830s, there was a first wave of Irish immigration to the city, much of this caused by the Irish potato famine that started in the mid-1840s. Now, the new Irish immigrants primarily lived around the Five Points neighborhood, right? Mm -hmm. But that's further west from here. But obviously, since there were thousands that came over, there was spillover, and some of that spillover came over here, where I assume the houses were a little nicer. Well, nicer is kind of relative. (laughs) I mean, Five Points buildings were starting to kind of tilt and sway and basically fall apart. Mm -hmm. Those were pretty cheap. But the row houses over here were starting to get subdivided by these tenants. So people who could moved up and out of the neighborhood, and they they divided their their row houses into, like, basically boarding houses, rooming houses, dividing what had been two-floor or three-floor homes into three-family homes. So these were sort of early kinds of apartment buildings. You can actually see examples of these earliest row houses, like, 
pre-tenement row houses over by the area of Henry Street Settlement. In fact, that is in an old row house that predates much of the tenement development around here. So if there's even examples of that that still exist in the neighborhood. Right. Well, there are old buildings as well along Grand Street uh, that were old shops that come from about this period, too. Those two and three floor places that up until recently were still selling lingerie. <laughs> But conditions were terrible in these places. And then, in the late 1840s, a big wave of German immigration happened into the city, much of it caused by a lot of political instability, uprisings of 1848 that really rocked Europe. Many of these people, made up of people who were oppressed, jobless, without money, but also people who were political refugees, who were very skilled— From the 1840s until 1900, there were nearly 5 million Germans who immigrated to the U.S. So where did they live? I mean, there was no more room for them in these rooming houses. So entrepreneurs saw an opportunity here to buy up these rooming houses, rip them down, and build these earliest tenement buildings along these same streets in the Lower East Side, which, after all, was a very easy neighborhood to get to from where these people were getting off the ships. I should add that in the German influx, you're also talking German Jews and also German Christians. Mm -hmm. And they would assimilate into New York culture in different ways. A lot of them, depending on what region they came from, had different levels of wealth. And so that would also determine not only where they lived in the city, but what kind of jobs they would get. So I would say those among the poorer side of things would move to this area in a brand new form of architecture that was developed called the tenement. One notable side effect that those tenements were constructed on the old row houses lots is that they only had those 25-foot wide lots to work with. So they weren't really buying multiple lots and making giant tenement buildings. They were building very narrow apartment buildings. No, these are, when this was a row house, when this was a single-family row house... I mean, this sounds kind of livable, right? I mean, for New York style, anyway. If you only had one family in there, sure. But now these buildings, these tenement buildings, were abodes that could pack in multiple families. Obviously, the idea of a tenement had an overtone of poverty and lower class because others didn't want to live with other people or, or can live in spaces with other people that weren't quite so cramped as these. Now, this would end up being the defining living quarter for the New York poor in the late 19th century and early 20th century. The first tenement, as much as we know, the first tenement, you can trace this to, was, was built in 1833 and rapidly dominated most of the poorer neighborhoods in lower Manhattan. In fact, it sort of damned the idea of living with other people. That That's why it took so long for the French flat or the apartment to sort of make its way into New York, which finally came in 1870s, almost 40 years later. So a standard tenement would have four to five stories, later six stories, four apartments on each floor with two facing out and two facing inwards towards the court. And again, this is only 25 feet wide. Yeah, I mean, really cramped spaces. There's only three rooms up parlor, a kitchen, a bedroom for the entire family, by the way, just living in the space. The early ones had no proper ventilation or natural light in the center rooms. And you may have noticed I didn't say anything about a bathroom right. where these earliest tenements didn't even have plumbing or gas lighting of any kind. These buildings would have a privy out back, basically like wooden outhouses. And the thing to remember is sometimes these tenements on larger blocks, these tenements would actually have other tenements behind them, sometimes in the center of the block. And mm. So imagine that with an outhouse there as well. It's a quite unpleasant situation. I suppose that for some people, this was seen as an improvement, right? If they were fleeing something that was miserable, or they were used to shacking up with other people in those old row houses, now they had their own space. Well, actually, those row houses, because they were just quickly refitted for multiple families, were actually worse than these. There was a certain, at least at the beginning, these were seen as a slight improvement in living. Well, that would quickly deteriorate. A few days ago, we sat down with Adam Steinberg of the Lower East Side Tenement Museum to discuss how that building even functioned as an apartment building. Typically, you'd find maybe 20 apartments in one of these tenements, four to a floor. The idea is it would be one apartment at each corner of each floor, and then each apartment could have two windows facing out. 
They might have more than one room, but only one room would get windows. Uh, you could have air shafts on the sides of the building that would get some light and air into the rear rooms, but that came usually with the later tenements. Uh, so you're talking about 20 apartments. So in those original constructions, the, the back rooms before the air shaft was constructed didn't have any window, even onto an air shaft. That is correct. How did people get any air? They did not get any error, and that was a big problem. The state actually began passing housing codes specifically to address that issue. The lack of air and sunlight, uh, as well as fresh water for these apartments, was the biggest concern of housing reformers and eventually of the government itself. But just to go back to this for one second, you said it's only three rooms. So how did that even work? You walked in and you pushed your way up these old wooden staircases in, in the, the dark. Yes, in the dark, because, again, there was no lighting. There might be gas lamps, perhaps in the nicer places. Usually you walk into the door and you walk into the kitchen where the family hung out during the day. And this is the middle room of the apartment. The middle room of the apartment, right. And so then on one side, you had the bedroom. And on the other side, you had the parlor, which was often a place where you worked, which we'll get to in a minute. And the parlor is the only room here that has windows. There's one room, right. Giving fresh air and light to the whole place. Right. And keep in mind, this is only one of three other apartments on your floor. We asked Adam Steinberg to sort of explain how the apartments themselves worked. How many people would have been living in this building at the same time? According to the 1900 census, peak density in the building was 110 people in 20 apartments. Central staircase, and this is before gas lighting, this is before indoor plumbing. So 110 people in the dark, and they're all sharing four outhouses and a water tap in the rear yard. Water supply? Uh, There was fresh municipal water that you can get from a tap in the rear yard, and then you would have to take buckets of water up to your apartment. So there were constantly people walking up and down the staircase constantly. And remember, some of these families also ran small garment factories out of their homes. They were called sweatshops. So that's where the phrase comes from. It's a tenement apartment garment factory. So you had the people living there, but then you had people who were coming there to go to work. Would they have a key to the front door? Would Would the door even lock? The front door did not lock. Only the door to your apartment locked. And one of the things you'll see if you visit the museum is that a lot of the apartments had these windows into the hallway. The idea is that your kerosene lamp in your bedroom could help light the hallway, which had no light at all. But there are bars on those windows because the hallway, as dark as it was, was essentially an extension of the sidewalk. By 1864, more than 62% of New York's 800,000 residents lived in tenements. And this became the dominant form of living in New York City. It was in that year that a standard tenement was built of, you know, no particular luster here at 97 Orchard, one of a long row of tenements uh, built by a German man named Lucas Glockner. He was not an important builder, and no one who really lived in this building became famous of their own accord. However, this building would become very important to our story. And the building still stands today. Oh, yeah. And it will be the building that you most likely visit if you're interested in the history of this neighborhood. Okay, so you have more than 60% of the city's population living in these new tenement apartment buildings. But who were these people? Now, where did you leave us off, Tom? In the 1860s, it was mostly... Germans. And it was mostly German-Jewish immigrants. The reason it kept more closely knit, of course, is that, naturally, the rest of New York was more Christian. So being the minority religion, you wanted to keep closer together. And so your amenities and things like synagogues would be clustered in one particular neighborhood. And you'd also be obviously united by language, of course. So it's not surprising that in the 1870s and 1880s, immigrants from Eastern Europe and Russia would then arrive at this point. And most of those who were Jewish would then end up here in the Lower East Side. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, these Eastern Europeans, drilled down a little bit, most of them came from Poland, Romania, Austria, Hungary, all the very small regions around this particular area. You know, it's a, it was a very different world in the mid-19th century. And many of them were, were fleeing political and religious persecution. In 1881, in fact, thousands of Russians came over fleeing persecution that was happening in the area after the assassination of Tsar Alexander II 
Most of these Jewish people lived in the area called the Pale of Settlement, which was a designated area where Jews were supposed to live during that period of time. But then these pogroms happened, and they had to flee for their lives. And so even coming to the Lower East Side and living in places that seemed maybe to us today, to be inadequate housing was actually a step up from the danger that they faced back home. Between 1881 and 1924, two million Jewish immigrants from the Russian Empire, Romania, and Austria-Hungary entered the United States, most of them cramming themselves into this neighborhood. By 1900, the year 1900, Tom, the population density of this neighborhood 986 people per acre. Or to do another interesting figure, in 1910, there were 70 people per 5,000 square feet. Today in New York, there are 12 people per 5,000 square feet. In LA today, there is one person per 5,000 square feet. Just to give you like a perspective of how tight this was. And he's got a nice tan. (laughs) Yes, the one in Los Angeles. Because he can see the sun and has fresh air. But you're not getting any sun here. Well, taking us back to this uh, tenement at 97 Orchard Street in 1900, there were, as you mentioned, 20 apartments, but there were 110 people living in this apartment building. 110. That building is not that much larger than my apartment building right here. uh, And the population density in this building is perhaps 20 of us, Mm -hmm. right? So just imagining that density, not just in 97 Orchard, but repeated all the way up and down, and not just Orchard Street, but also Ludlow, and also Mm -hmm. Allen, and also Essex, and the surrounding streets. I'm going to choose to look at this in a more positive sense, however, because when you have this large amount of people in one place, they were able to create a completely unique culture of the kind that had never existed in the United States. This would be the center of Ashkenazi Jewish life. Ashkenazi being a phrase for Central or Eastern European Jewish practice, in contrast with those first Jews that came over who are more Sephardic, which was Western Europe of Spanish and Portuguese descent. Now, what was very different from the Italians who sort of came over at this time and were centered over by today's Little Italy area, for instance. Right, because on top of this, we have Italians immigrating. Yeah, at the same, literally the same decade. But a lot of the Italians that came over were going back or sending their money back with the idea that they were trying to support their families back home. Right, and we talk about that in the Little Italy podcast, which is a nice companion piece to this one. It certainly is. Here, you had whole Jewish families coming to make a home here. They were united by faith, and they were also united by language, for most of them spoke Yiddish. This was the primary language of the Lower East Side during this period. Although the language has faded from use, at least compared to back in the late 19th century, although it is making a bit of a comeback, however much of the Yiddish that was spoken here sort of infused itself into New York speech, even if you weren't Jewish. I mean, so today, I would say many typical New York phrases, if you wanted to sound like a character from Seinfeld, you usually dash off one of these phrases. And I have a feeling that you've come armed with a couple Yiddish phrases for us. Well, bubkis, chutzpah. You know, mm-hmm. I'm always kvetching mm-hmm. about things, you know. Schlepping, probably, too. And some schlepping. I've got a glitz. I'm sometimes a klutz. Mm-hmm. I like to go to Midtown and schmooze. And my two favorite, of course, oh, I'm just so verklempt right now. And what are you, a yutz? <laughs> so, like, we actually speak a lot of Yiddish, even if you don't realize that there's a lot of words with Yiddish origins. Well, this sounds fairly unique that you have all of these immigrants coming to this one neighborhood and and creating and celebrating their own culture. Yeah, I mean, it's this is kind of what's incredible because we are used to diversity in New York City. It's part of what New York City today. is today. But up until the 1870s, most New Yorkers had not been exposed to any other belief other than Christianity, right? That the German Jews that came over, well, they tended to assimilate more quickly. And they're just, you know, obviously, they wouldn't be as many Jewish people in New York than in the 1880s. It was in this period and in this place here in the Lower East Side that the American Jewish identity was essentially created on all these streets, on Orchard and Hester, Ludlow, Houston, and those avenues in the East Village today. 
And they developed this through all the social interaction and the newspapers and even you know, the Yiddish theater that was thriving at this time. For example, with the Jewish Daily Forward, the newspaper that was established in 1897, which didn't just serve this neighborhood, but served the entire Yiddish-speaking population in New York and around the country. Mm -hmm. And it was even exported outside the United mm -hmm. States. It helped cement and standardize a shared Yiddish language because there were so many different dialects of Yiddish itself. Well, this became the most important Jewish community in the world by the late 19th century. Now, I'm not being naive. Jews were victims of huge discrimination at this time, and there was a great misunderstanding. Here in New York. Here in New York. Uh, you know, often associated, of course, with their station in life, with this being a poorer neighborhood. What anchored the Jewish immigrants here were the many synagogues. What I find really interesting is just a lot of synagogues in the Lower East Side. Mm -hmm. Some of them used to be Christian churches that then were, of course, changed because there weren't as many Christian followers that were living here. A great example is actually over on Eldridge Street, just a couple blocks away in 1887, the Eldridge Street Synagogue was built. And many of these newly arrived immigrants would set up their own sort of storefront synagogues while they were saving up money to build one of these. As many of these lots were already in use, sometimes that meant actually buying tenement buildings mm -hmm. to dis to demolish so that they could put up a synagogue. So you also yeah. have this interesting mm -hmm. uh, situation where synagogues are replacing tenements. There's also another competing factor, and that is how to become an American, or what was perceived of the changes you have to make in your life mm -hmm. to become accepted. In fact, in 1900, there was a great worry from the rabbis, the noted rabbis in this area, that the Jewish people who were coming in were assimilating and changing their customs so quickly that basic things like the celebration of Hanukkah were being forgotten, that many people were starting to adopt Christmas as a holiday festival. Um, one of them wrote in relation to Hanukkah, quote, this festival occurs so nearly coincident with the Christian festival of Christmas that there is a danger that the observance of one may be lost to the gradual assimilation of the other. So many mm -hmm. people consider this neighborhood to be the way to keep the Jewish customs alive, mm -hmm. is to keep them thriving in the streets through the language and through the practices, but also through the social life and the social activity that would be hanging out outside. And we'll be heading outside into the streets and into the other public spaces of Orchard Street and the Lower East Side after the break. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states in Canada where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus.
And now, back to the show. All right, Greg. So you had painted this picture of Orchard and the surrounding streets really from the inside. From the inside. Right. What the apartments were like and also how people worshipped. But they didn't spend all of their time inside their tenements or houses of worship. Obviously, they were making money as well. They had jobs. They had social lives. Up until the 1830s, as we said, most of the people living in these row houses had skilled jobs or they worked down at the docks. But that would change dramatically with these waves of immigrants arriving and then residing in these tenement houses. During the German period, it shouldn't be too surprising that one of the big businesses around here, one of the big stores lining the streets were the German beer saloons. The German immigrants brought the beer saloon culture with them from their homeland, and it was something that usually the man in the family would run and his Mm -hmm. wife and perhaps children would be in charge of preparing the free food that would be given away to lure people in and because it was a law. I mean, these beer halls could be quite large, as such as the ones that were up on the Bowery, but around here, I can't imagine they were too big. I'm sure they were basement dives in many cases. Well, in the case of 97 Orchard, to come back to that example, there was on the lower right-hand side, if you're looking at the tenement, there are two basement shops, but it's just really a few steps down from the sidewalk. On the right-hand side, starting in the 1860s, was a beer hall that operated for many decades, Mm -hmm. And on the left-hand side was Mr. Glockner's tailor shop. Remember that Glockner was the landlord of 97 Orchard. He had built this place. But as you mentioned, he wasn't really like a big landlord. No, he owned, no. He, like so many others, was a recently arrived immigrant who was a skilled tailor, ran that shop in addition to running the tenement. And on top of it, he lived in the building. So that that does kind of throw off how yeah, we think about these buildings if you think that some of these people who own them also lived inside themselves. And sort of a way to connect us to today, those beer saloons, the beer halls, mm-hmm. would often, they would make the beer themselves, or they would have a deal with someone very locally to make the beer. Like, this was way before they had mass-produced beer. So right. that's kind of an interesting so we're coming feature. back yes. to the microbrew. <laughs> microbrew. Not all of the German immigrants, obviously, were running beer saloons. Oh, no. Though probably all of them went to one or had their local saloon. Others were grocers. They worked in small industries. They made household items, candy, cigar. They operated all kinds of stores. A few decades later, with the great waves of Jewish immigration, the neighborhood would be really transformed into the early garment district. And here, in these same apartments, people would operate small-scale factories, or what would be termed, because of their cramped, hot conditions, sweatshops, which must have been incredibly uncomfortable. If you consider Mm -hmm. that these apartments, like you mentioned, were already poorly ventilated, right? The only room that got any fresh air was that front parlor. Where you were probably working. Right. Right. Well, if you were lucky, you were next to the window at a long table, right, with other people who were sewing the inside lining on a jacket or putting together the final touches on on a dress, whatever it was that that particular shop focused on. But you were also in the front parlor of somebody's apartment. And in the middle room, just one off of you, was the kitchen. That's where the family had their stove and where perhaps the mother was doing some cooking. At the same time, perhaps her son or somebody else from the sweatshop had an iron that was sitting on top of the stove so that they could press out the garments before they were delivered off to the store, the warehouse, or the next stop in their, in their assemblage. May I throw in a quote from Jacob Rees, Tom? Jacob Rees, being the journalist who exposed New Yorkers to the plight of these immigrants in his book, How the Other Half Lives. Well, in talking about these sweatshop home working environments, quote, every member of the family from the youngest to the oldest bears a hand, shuts in the Kwame rooms where meals are cooked and clothing washed and dried the live long day. It is not unusual to find a dozen persons, men, women, and children at work in a single small room. And let us not forget that many of the people working here in these sweatshops were people who had just recently arrived in the U.S., They used some connection. Perhaps they had an address of a family member or relative to go to on Orchard Street. And once established in a tenement building themselves, they would then head down to the corner of Orchard and Hester to an area that would be somewhat derisively termed the pig markets, 
This was a busy intersection full of pushcarts selling, but also young, mostly women who were looking for jobs in these sweatshops. It's like kind of a work exchange place where you would basically st- stand there and employees looking for quote unquote freelancers. That's not a word that existed back then. Uh, would come and hire people uh, right there off the street for limited time jobs. Right, and perhaps you'd get a good gig and you'd be in the same sweatshop for a long time. But but it was also likely that you were trying to work your way up, especially if when you arrived here, you didn't speak really the same kind of Yiddish as others. You couldn't communicate very well, perhaps. It really wasn't until the 20th century that people were, by and large, speaking English to each other on the streets. So imagine all of the different dialects and languages that people spoke who lived in this neighborhood and how that played into the sweatshops where you might be sitting next to somebody who had just arrived a couple days ago and you couldn't really communicate with each other. Also imagine the fact that people were coming around the clock. These were not nine-to-five sweatshops. No, that's a luxury that would come later, the idea of nine-to-five. It would basically be like during all daylight and even some nighttime hours conditions would improve many decades later as reforms were enacted that banned garment factories inside private apartments. And so many of these industries would relocate much farther north, not too much farther. They'd mostly be between 14th and 23rd Street and west of Broadway. And they'd locate there because that was where spaces were biggest. And these same people from the Lower East Side could still arrive by foot, because many of them, even if the subways opened in 1904, couldn't afford it. Right. Many of them couldn't afford a ticket. And this is the roots, I believe, of today's garment district. But there were all manner of stores as well, and each of these populations that would arrive would bring with them their own needs, right, for living and also for worship. And so those would sort of dictate what kinds of stores were populating Orchard Street. But people needed household goods as well. So there were all kinds of small shops. There were also larger department stores, including the E. Ridley & Sons department store, which opened at Orchard & Grand. It was founded in 1849 by Mr. Ridley, who had come to New York from England, and it would grow um, to include all the stores around it by 1883. That big building is still with us today if you're standing at the corner of Grand & Orchard. Oh, that's a department store. Yes, that big pink today, it's a sort of cotton candy pink. It was seen as sort of a fancy destination for shoppers during its heyday in the second half of the 19th century, although, as we've talked about in the Ladies' Mile show, much of the department store shopping at the time was happening on Long Ladies' Mm -hmm. Mile, that strip of 6th Avenue from 14th up to 23rd Street. So this E. Ridley's increasingly seemed sort of far away, way down on Orchard Street, and the neighborhood got poor around it. Interestingly, they were one of the very first department stores to sell through the mail, through catalogs. So they would ship off these catalogs. I actually have a copy of one of the ads here. Um, We'll send for free on application a copy of the Fall and Winter Illustrated Catalog. And they really say, you know, they go out of their way to say, we promise the same attention to orders entrusted to us as if the purchaser were present in person. Well, part of that might have been because it's true that, like, fancier ladies may have been unwilling to go down to their department store. So to to keep it fresh, you have to send your product lines to them. Alas, there was not enough business and it closed in 1901. But the real action on the street, you know, that lives on in the The iconic roles, right. Right. Mm -hmm. When you look at photos of Orchard Street from the late 19th century and early 20th century, what you really notice are all the push carts. These are carts that could be loaded up with whatever it was that you wanted to sell, be it day-old fruits and vegetables or hardware or furniture or mattresses, clothing, fabric, you name it. Anybody could be a vendor by buying one of these pushcarts, loading it up with stuff, and then hitting the streets. They were entrepreneurs. And you didn't need any kind of elaborate permit. No, there was virtually no regulation. (laughs) And these carts would just cram onto Orchard Street, especially around that intersection of Orchard and Hester. So just imagine the pushcarts arriving very early at the crack of dawn, lining up to get the best position. And you wanted to usually put your cart in about the same position so that the clientele that you had developed a relationship with would come back to you. And it was usually the wife or the mother who was doing the shopping every day who was going down to get the food because refrigeration basically Mm -hmm. didn't 
exist. Right. At this time, personal refrigeration was decades into the future. So people would come down to buy veggies and fruits and to haggle. This was also something that they had brought with them from their homeland. You know, they were negotiating with these vendors on the streets over the prices, touching the merchandise, and then playing the different merchants off of each other. Because if you could say the next card over, look, he's going to charge me two cents for this. You know, what do you do? Mm Mm-hmm. But what mayhem, I'm, to look up the street, you'd see a really crowded sidewalk full of people buying things. Then you'd see a row of push carts. Then you'd see a, a narrow path on the street for actual traffic. Then you'd see more push carts and then another sidewalk. Right. It was basically pedestrian traffic only, mm-hmm. aside from these carts. Pretty I mean, much, nothing yeah. could get through. And that would be one of the big reasons, you know, flashing forward to the 1930s, when Mayor LaGuardia in 1938 would actually ban push carts. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Also, organ grinders, because don't forget there are organ grinders on the street. Too. <laughs> There's like loose monkeys right. like wandering around. <laughs> Creating merriment. <laughs> By the 1930s, there was actual automobile and truck traffic trying to get through these same streets as well. And he just said, enough with it, and built Essex Street yeah. Market in the 30s to give these people a place to go. With all these people here, of course, it sounds unhealthy, and this is an era of disease and quarantine and major concerns of possible mass illness. Yes, and doctors were, for the most part, not down here, right? There was just no money to pay for medical services, and people would get sick and die very young. These were terrible living conditions. And by the way, that was one of the reasons that they passed the laws outlawing the production of garments inside these apartments on the Lower East Side. It was because people were afraid that the diseases that were running rampant could actually be passed through the garments. On the fabric? On the fabric. Well, I mean, imagine. People didn't really know. And that by buying these pieces that had been produced in these very unhealthy living conditions, you could actually catch one of these contagious diseases. I mean, these are the days before Typhoid Mary, even. So there's really lack of understanding of how things are communicated, how diseases are communicated. The reform movement that came in at the end of the 19th century established some services that were meant to raise the standard of health in the neighborhood, notably the Henry Street Settlement, which was established in 1893, which trained and then sent nurses around to the different tenement buildings to inspect and to help people out. And so they would have somewhat regular nurse visits. And the Henry Street Settlement's basically one of the great lifesavers of the Lower East Side and saved thousands of people. And it's still operating just blocks from Orchard Street. Two of the other things that they did to address it were to establish parks so that kids could actually get out, get some sunlight, fresh air, and play around, including Seward Park, which opened at the corner of Essex and Canal in 1903 and offered children a new outdoor recreation space because many of these kids had been playing in their backyard. So the backyard of the tenement was a place where the you know mothers were doing the laundry and everybody was using the bathroom, but they had also become sort of de facto play spaces. Well, I mean, if you're lucky, many of the kids are playing out in the street. So, so it's actually quite dangerous. And so these playgrounds were essential for the neighborhood. Yeah, they were somewhat controversial with some mothers who had become accustomed to being able to look out the window and see oh. their children playing, and now they were playing off someplace else where they couldn't see them. That is a little frightening. That's true. The introduction of public schools in the neighborhood was was also a major step forward for the health and well-being of the children of the neighborhood, because now, with the establishment of new school buildings, especially in terms of Orchard Street, PS42, which was built around 1900 between Ludlow and Orchard on Hester Street. These offered a respite from the horrible conditions the children were living with back in their tenements. They were sort of the opposite of the tenements. They offered big rooms with giant windows that let in lots of light and fresh air. I mean, many of these buildings are still around this neighborhood today, and they contrast so strangely with the tenements because they do have large windows. They have rooftops, at least that were used back in the day. And they were getting more than just fresh air at these schools, which is another point that Adam Steinberg from the Tenement Museum made when we spoke with him. By about 1900, 70% of school kids in New York City, the five boroughs, are either immigrants or the children of immigrants. 
there is enormous demand for these kids to go to school. And there was also demands not just from the families themselves who wanted their kids to go to schools. There was also demands from reformers that these kids go to school so that the schools can teach them how to be proper Americans. So there is a, a huge expansion in the budget of school building in New York City. So the idea was these schools would be almost the antithesis of the tenements. They had huge classrooms with big windows, lots of fresh air and sunlight. They were very sturdy, very expensive-looking buildings compared to the tenements, which were looked to the eyes of the 19th century New Yorker, kind of shoddy. But the most important thing was the curriculum that was developed to go in these schools, a curriculum that was really designed to strip the immigrant children of their immigrant culture and make them American as understood by the people who were in the reform movement. So there was no ESOL, certainly no bilingual education. You arrive at school, no matter what your age, you're sent to kindergarten. Really? So we could have older kids in the kindergarten class? The, the thinking is, well, the, that's where you need to go to learn English. Uh, so you could have a 10-year-old sitting next to a 6-year-old, and it would be awkward for everyone involved. There was a Pledge of Allegiance that was created in part because the assumption was these children have to be taught how to be patriotic. There was a school lunch menu to keep the kids from going out during their lunch breaks to buy food from the pushcart peddlers. The idea is if you keep them in a school cafeteria feeding them this food, the food you serve you know will be high hygienic, but you also know it'll be American food, at least as they thought it should be. They won't be eating all these foreign foods like pickles or, you know, these sort of spicy sausages or whatever it was the immigrant kids were eating. So those are ways in which the city tried to make life better for people who lived here. But, you know, another way to just make it better was to get some of them out of the Lower East Side is to relieve that congestion, to relieve the pressure. So in the start of the 20th century arrived a few ways to kind of get people out. Basically, the bridges and trains that frame the neighborhood of today's Lower East Side. The Williamsburg Bridge and the widening of Delancey Street came in 1903. The opening of the subway the following year. And then the subway lines that would service the Williamsburg Bridge in 1909. And of course, the Manhattan Bridge, which opened also in 1909. Now, there's sort of direct evidence that this did work. If you'll look at the other side of the Williamsburg Bridge, mm -hmm. what do you find there but a vibrant Hasidic community? And they would, in fact, migrate to that area of Brooklyn just a decade or two after the bridge was built. And what's interesting about that is that they could live in Brooklyn on either side of those bridges and still commute into the Lower East Side to do their shopping at the Judaica stores, at the kosher butchers that lined Orchard Street, at the places that they needed for their worship and for the way that they live and then go home to their mm -hmm. new apartments. And that happens to this day, actually. Back when I lived down on East Broadway, there were synagogues on that street uh, that were attended by men who then went back to Williamsburg. Now, there were other Jewish neighborhoods that developed by the 1920s and 1930s that were f basically people who had lived in the Lower East Side, neighborhoods like Brighton Beach, of course, and Crown Heights, Borough Park. Something less pleasant worked to decrease the population. That was the Immigrant Exclusion Act of 1924, which limited the number of people who could arrive from foreign countries. And this was actually driven by fears of un-American philosophies and misguided drives of racial purity. And so that influenced the people who could come and live in the Lower East Side. And when were those laws passed? So that was 1924 mm -hmm. and would basically be in effect for decades. So it's easier than ever to live outside the Lower East Side and still adhere to your living and religious practices. And at the same time, there are far fewer immigrants coming in to take over those yeah. same apartments. And at the same time, the housing of those people who did live here did improve, at least they considered it improvement in the mid-20th century with uh, you know all these slum clearances that happened. In fact, if you go over along the edge of the Lower East Side, the waterfront of the mm -hmm. Lower East Side, the Corlears Hook area, almost all of it is housing projects and housing developments that cleared away hundreds of tenements during this period. Essentially, if you look at a map of the Lower East Side in 1900, it's completely reconfigured and transformed by about 1950 with all of these new housing developments. However, Orchard Street would remain little changed even by that time. 
there were still hundreds of tenements that remained standing, including all of those up and down Orchard Street. Although with all of these further regulations and restrictions, it became harder for landlords to provide upkeep for these buildings. And you actually just had fewer people moving into them. So pretty soon you had an opposite problem that from the one you had 50 years previous, you would soon have no one living in these buildings, which is precisely what happened over on 97 Orchard Street. These laws became so strict that it became cost prohibitive for the owner of the building at that time to make the changes that were required to make it habitable. Now, at the same time, before we start like sympathizing too much <laughs> with the tenement right. owners and landlords, these laws were seen as major steps forward for the health and safety of the people who lived there. They, they yeah. mandated that new windows had to be cut in the apartments to allow in fresh air, that toilets had to be placed on the floors, that running water would be put into the apartments, that electricity would be added. These are good things. <laughs> these, these, are, these are livable. You're creating livable places. But these tenements, they were just dilapidated. They had been around, okay. some of them, by almost a, for 100 years. And it was expensive to retrofit them with all of these new features that would make the building safer. And they could have kept them open, but then the rents would have been so high that why not just rent somewhere else in a nicer neighborhood, right? Right. So... In 1935, the owner of 97 Orchard Street decided that he couldn't make these changes to the building. And so, essentially, he boarded up the top four floors, closed them up. No one lived there. So, 16 apartments. 16 apartments, basically uninhabited for decades. The shop on the street level, of course, would still be open. Now, these sorts of regulations might have been devastating for Orchard Street. You can imagine a, a world where no one's living here anymore or going to Orchard Street. But for a sort of curious thing that the shop owners of the neighborhood were able to take advantage of, they were able to stay afloat curiously enough because of New York laws that stated that businesses needed to close on Sunday for the observance of the Sabbath, the Christian Sabbath. These are the blue laws? Right. They're, they call them blue laws, which often are referred to for liquor sales today, but uh, back then it was just for all retail had to be closed on Sunday. But if you were Jewish, you observed your holy day on Friday evening to Saturday evening. So they could open on Sunday. Now, legally, they were not allowed to, but they were not violating their own religion. They kept open anyway because they saw an opportunity. Every The rest of the city was closed down. And what would happen is sometimes, occasionally, these business owners on Orchard Street would get a ticket for operating on Sunday, but then the other shop owners would sort of chip in mm. and help pay for these tickets. So as a result... Orchard Street became a thriving retail district that sold primarily fabric, leather, luggage. And you can still see aspects of this today when you walk up and down the street. I mean, that's where I buy my luggage. All my yeah. baggage I get from the Lower East Side. <laughs> you left some of that here when you moved to Brooklyn. <laughs> I guess I did. Unfortunately for these merchants, when those blue laws were repealed in the 1970s, and malls and other shopping centers and department stores around New York could remain open on Sunday. That delivered a huge hit to the economy of, of the Lower East Side and specifically Orchard Street. By the 60s and 70s, you had new communities moving, moving to the Lower East Side streets, Hispanic and immigrant groups like Puerto Rican and Dominicans. Then, of course, you had Bohemians and the artist communities and counterculture started moving into some of these abandoned tenements and building theaters and galleries and the grungy Lower East Side was created by the late 80s and 90s. Also, on top of that, you had from the West, you had growing Chinatown with the new populations of Fujian Chinese who were moving in and settling along Essex Street. And so today, you, you almost see as much evidence of this new East Chinatown than you see of almost any other culture today, I would say. Although it does seem that most of the Chinese businesses are still today west of Allen Street, wouldn't you say? Well, I think that if... I, although it might be more concentrated, I think this is the area for growth. I mean, this is the area of, of Chinatown that is growing most rapidly. And I guess you could argue that places that were Chinese businesses when we both moved into the area in the late 90s are now being replaced by 
upscale coffee shops, cafes, galleries. All the signs of gentrification and higher rents, um, which has happened in the Lower East Side for the past 10, 15 years. But it's really escalated recently. But a little bit of that world, a little bit of the tenement world still exists. And you can go visit it. And it is one of the biggest destinations. Now, it's back to that address that we kept bringing up in the show, 97 Orchard Street. In 1985, two historians named Ruth Abram and Anita Jacobson, they were looking to, de- to develop a home museum. You know, a lot of museums like the Morris Jamel Mansion or, you know, or even the Merchant's House were these home museums, but they embodied the wealthy lifestyle of people, how they, the wealthy used to live in the 18th and 19th century. They wanted to do something similar to that, but to demonstrate how the people of the Lower East Side lived. So... Three years later, in 1988, they found 97 Orchard Street. They answered an ad, mm-hmm. and with these upper floors that were like kind of like a time capsule. And so they bought the building, and from this place, they founded the Lower East Side Tenement Museum. And in 1994, 97 Orchard Street became a national historic landmark. So today, visitors to the Tenement Museum tour an actual tenement building that was Mm -hmm. constructed in 1863 and have the opportunity to visit four floors of those apartments. And those floors are not made up to tell the story of some fictitious families that lived there, but they're actually showing how different families lived Mm -hmm. who really lived there in that building over the course of that span from 1863 until 1935. And this building is so extraordinary to see, to especially see what they've done with it. And they have a variety of different tours that take you through different aspects of the lives of people who lived there. But you can also just walk down Orchard Street itself and see the history kind of imprinted along the buildings because most of the buildings are over 100 years old. And you can see all the different things that are happening and have happened in the history of Orchard Street as you walk up and down the street. And also see a lot of buildings being knocked down by this current wave. Orchard Street between Houston and Delancey has been given this derisive nickname of Hell Square uh, because there's like because there's so many bars and restaurants there and there's uh, it gets a little rowdy late at night. Yeah, walking through it on a weekend night can feel like you're descending the rungs of Dante's Inferno. But you can still find a little bit of that old retail tradition that we that we set up that was from the the 1950s and even older from the old pushcart tradition. For instance, Seoul Moscot, which is an eyeglass company, which is currently at a location at the corner of Delancey and Houston, traces back to the original pushcart of Hyman Moscot, who started in 1915 selling eyeglasses out of his own pushcart. Mm-hmm. And then Seoul was his son who started working for him at age 15. As you progress down Orchard Street from Delancey down towards Canal, you'll see a little bit of the gentrification, but some of it that's maybe a little pointing to what used to be in the neighborhood, like old Cafe Katya. It's actually not terribly old. It's only been there for about 10 years <laughs> yeah, yeah. and serves up delicious Austrian food. Uh, and great Austrian and German beers. You can find some of the old clothing traditions down at the corner of Grand and Orchard at the place called Jodamo International, which opened in 1983. And Jodamo stands for the owner's three sons, Joseph, David, and Moisha. Oh. So Jodamo. That's cool, right? And right across the street from Jodamo, by the way, is one of my favorite stores on the block. It's Global International, the suit shop. This has been in the same family for several decades. But if you're walking by, chances are that you'll be approached by Samuel, one of the owners of the business, who will ask you to come inside and to look over some suits and probably offer you a deal as well. Last time my (laughs) parents were in town, my dad walked by and I don't know what happened. But next thing I knew, my brothers and I were all getting fitted for suits. And so I had a suit from from Global International. Yeah, that blue pinstripe one. But it's great how he's out working the sidewalk still today in a way that you really will be hard-pressed to find in other neighborhoods in New York. Here's an owner of a business working it like it's 1900. Yeah, that street work is a component of this neighborhood and it's very distinctive of the retailers of the day. But perhaps the most 
intriguing building lies at the very end of Orchard Street at Canal. That is the beautiful Jarmolowski Bank Building, which is at Canal and Orchard. That was built by a Russian-Polish immigrant named Sender Jarmolowski, who kind of lived a rags-to-riches kind of a life. He got wealthy selling steamship tickets to immigrants and then became a, a wealthy banker of great renown. He even co-founded the Eldridge Street Synagogue. In 1912, he built this lavish bank here, but then unfortunately died three weeks after it was constructed. And then in 1914, during the start of World War I, the bank essentially collapsed and people pulled out their money and sent it back home. Uh, because the people were fearful of their families that were back home. So leading to a great panic and the collapse of the bank itself. Mm -hmm. During the 1980s, this building was filled with Chinese sweatshops and artist studios. It was landmarked in 2009 and is today being renovated into a hyper luxury hotel. So there you have the whole story of Orchard Street embodied in one structure. Join us on the blog, BoweryBoyceHistory.com, to see photographs and drawings and maps of Orchard Street through the centuries. Hundreds and hundreds of people will be featured in these photographs because many of them are just the bustling street life, and I can't wait to show them to you. We'd like to thank Adam Steinberg from the Lower East Side Tenement Museum for sitting down with us uh, to have a lengthy conversation. Much of that conversation will be offered to the patrons of the show, and that is available through patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Bowery Boys, where you can become a patron of the show and support us in our effort to put out a new show every two weeks and have special VIP access to extended audio clips like this much, much longer interview with Adam. And to those who have already donated to Patreon, we greatly appreciate it. And by the way, you can also check us out on Facebook and on Twitter and on Instagram, where you can follow our journey to create the very first Bowery Boys book. So I will be sort of documenting various places where research is happening. So check us out there as well. So thanks for joining us on this lovely stroll through the orchard, or shall I say, Orchard Street. So have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.